What a beautiful day it is. The rain has fallen, clouds are in the sky, and the air is cool. What a wonderful, beautiful day this is. I'm glad that you are here to be a part of it as we worship our God together. A number of years ago, there was an atheist uh, who, in a blog post, asked the question, why would God use someone who was born in a manger? After all, he said, God used King David and King Saul and King Solomon. Why would he have a child born in a manger be his son? But you see, he missed the point because King Saul wasn't always King Saul. And King David wasn't always King David. God lifted these men out of humble means and made them great. And really it was only Solomon who was born into greatness. God has often used the man or woman of humble means. One such case was the case of Amos, the prophet. Amos was a man who was not high in his position. Amos was a man who, quite frankly, was rather low on the social order of things in Israel and in Judah. He was a man who was a shepherd by occupation. And in chapter 7 and verse 14 of his book, he talks about the fact that he was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet and that he often had to tend a fig grove. Amos was a common man with an uncommon message. And this morning, I want us to begin looking at Amos and the message that he has and look to see what we can glean from his message. He was a short-term messenger. He was someone who had one prophecy during the time of Uzziah, king of Judah, and Jeroboam II of Israel a very short span of time in which he served as a messenger for God. What does this phrase mean, not a prophet nor a son of a prophet? It means that he was of such humble means that he did not consider himself to be a trained or articulate orator. There are some prophets like Elijah who evidently had a school for prophets, much like we might have a school of theology today. And, and we read about some of those prophets in, in the book of Kings that followed Elijah. Amos was not one of those. He says, I'm a man that is not trained to preach the word of God. I'm just a common man that God used to proclaim an uncommon message. So what was that message that Amos proclaimed? I want us to think about this message and this theme this morning. There was a validity in his message, the validity that came in the message being from God and not based on who the messenger is. Sometimes we hear messages that are hard to hear, yet we must be careful not to reject them because we don't like or respect the messenger. As we look at this message, we find that there are two sides of God's relationship with Israel and Judah revealed in Amos' visions. And there is importance for us as we understand our relationship with God as Christians today. And so let's begin by thinking about God's message that he gives through the prophet Amos. When you open up and you begin looking at the first couple of chapters of Amos, you see that there, are, there is a theme, there is a message that was exciting for Israel. And that message was God is going to take out the enemies of God. 
he's going to punish those individuals and those nations. And so he talks about a punishment for the Arameans, the people you and I would call Syria today. There is a message against the Philistines, those people along the coastlines of Israel who constantly fought against the Israelites and Judah. There is a, a ruling against the Phoenicians who had once been allies to Israel but had now abandoned that relationship. There was a statement against the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, and how they did wrong to the people of Israel. There is a message against the Ammonites, cousins of the Israelites, and how they had done harm to Israel. And there is a message against the other cousins of Israel, the Moabites, and how they had done wrong against Israel. And so God says, I'm going to punish these nations. And if you're someone from the nation of Israel, or you're someone from the nation of Judah, you are excited about this. You're like, yeah, God's going to get them. God's going to take care of this. God's going to get rid of the pain and the suffering in my life. Notice what God says to some of these nations. Chapter 1, verse 3, Therefore the Lord says, For three transgressions of Damascus, that's Syria, and for four I will not revoke its punishment. Verse 6, God says, Therefore, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza, that's the Philistines, or for four, I will not revoke its punishment. Verse 9, he says, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre, and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. That is Phoenicia. Verse 11, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom, and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. Verse 13, therefore, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the sons of Ammon. Chapter 2, verse 1, for three transgressions of Moab. And so the people of Israel are listening to Amos, and they're thinking, hey, so far, so good. Amos, these people that have done us wrong are going to see the wrath of God. But then God turns, and Amos turns, nasty. Look at chapter 2, verse 4. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. Chapter 2, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. So now God's speaking against his people Israel. And they're not excited about this. Because God, I thought you were on our side. God, I thought you were always going to take care of us. But now, God, you're saying that there's going to come punishment upon us? Because they had forgotten their relationship with God. God speaks to a combined nation, chapter 3, verse 1. Hear this word which the Lord has spoken against you, sons of Israel, against the entire family, Israel and Judah, which he brought up from the land of Egypt. All of a sudden, God's message becomes unpopular. Because not only is God saying that he's going to punish those nations that have inflicted harm on Israel, but now God is going to do harm to Israel itself. Were these merely the words of an angry God? Or did some God have something else in mind? God is doing something because Israel had forgotten its relationship with God. And God is revealing that unique relationship in his message through Amos. God had a covenant relationship with Israel. 
that had gone back all the way to the time of Moses. And because of that, he was going to protect the Israelites. As we go back to chapter 2 and verse 3, he says to the Arameans, I will punish you because they threshed Gilead with implements of sharp iron. They stole their fields. They ruined their fields. They did harm on Israel. He speaks to the Philistines and he says they deported an entire population of Israel and of Judah. He, he speaks of the Phoenicians and he said they did not remember that brotherhood, that bond that they had between Solomon and Israel and themselves. He speaks to the Edomites and he said they pursued his brother. Remember, Jacob had his brother Esau who became the nation of Edom. And Edom pursued and in times of trouble for Israel pursued Jacob. He speaks of the Ammonites, verse 13, who ripped open the pregnant women. That's pretty violent to see, see, uh, scene and imagery. And Moab burned the bones of the king of Edom, a son of Abraham. And so God says, I had this relationship with you. And these nations have done harm to you. But because I am your God, I'm going to do something about this. In Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3, God had told Abraham on that day that he calls him out of Haran. And he says, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And God is keeping his promise. Later, God says uh, to Jacob, he says, sojourn in this land and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and to your descendants I will give this land and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. He also says to Rachel, two nations are in your womb. Two people will be separated from your body, and one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. God had a relationship with Israel. And he says, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to provide for you. And so in Exodus chapter 23 and verse 22, after God has the, makes the Ten Commandments, and he makes that covenant with Israel, he tells the Israelites, this is still gathered there on Mount Sinai. He says, but if you truly obey his voice, the voice of the angel, the voice also of Moses, and you do all that I say, and I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversary. As God is speaking to Amos, or speaking through Amos, he says, look, the Ammonites, the Phoenicians, the Philistines, the, the, the Moabites, all these nations that have plagued you, I'm doing what I said I was going to do. I'm cursing those nations who have cursed you. I'm being an adversary to those adversaries that you face. But you see, there were two sides of the same coin. God says, if you truly obey his voice and do all that I say, there was that caveat that God made with Israel in Exodus chapter 23. If you obey his voice. Oh, how Israel had forgotten to obey the voice of God. And they had forgotten that relationship that they had with God. And because of that, they were finding themselves in trouble. They had rejected God. And because of that, they had rejected the relationship of God with God. And they had found problems with God. Notice uh, what God says as he speaks to what Israel has done. Amos chapter 2, verse 4. 
Thus says the Lord God, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because they rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. Their lies also have led them astray. He says in chapter 7 and verse 8, or chapter, uh, chapter 2 and verse 7, the first half of the verse, these who pant after the very dust of the earth on the head of helpless also turn aside the way of the humble. And so they're no longer being merciful to those who are struggling and having mercy on people who are stumbling. In that same verse, he talks about the immorality. A man and his father resort to the same girl and in, or in order to profane my holy name. There's immorality in Israel. Verse 8, chapter 2. On garments taken out as pledges, they stretch out beside every altar. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. They're practicing greed and idolatry. Chapter 3, verse 14. For on that day that I punish Israel's transgressions, I will also punish the altars of Bethel, those altars that Jeroboam set up strictly for the purpose of leading Israel away from God. And so when we consider Israel and how she had conducted herself in her relationship with God, we see a people that are given, first of all, to the rejection of God, but also to corruption, also to mercil, uh, being lacking mercy, being mercilessness, uh, immorality, and greed, and idolatry. And God says, enough is enough. God's message has two sides to the same coin. On the one hand, you have God fulfilling his promises. I'm going to be an adversary to those who are against you. And yet the other side of that covenant relationship, the other side of that promise is that the Lord will hold his people That's not something that we often think about. That's not a message that was popular in Amos' day, and it's not a message that is popular today. But God has a covenant relationship with Israel, or had a covenant relationship with Israel. And he says there's two parts of this covenant. There's a good part, and if you're faithful, you're going to get so many blessings. But there is also an accountability component. And if you don't follow God, you're going to find his wrath. Today, in Matthew chapter 26, we see Jesus saying to his apostles on that day of that last supper when he's eating with his apostles, and he says, this is my blood which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. My blood of the covenant. Just like Moses took the blood of bulls and goats on the day that he ratified that covenant with Israel in Exodus chapter uh, 23, and he takes some of that blood, or chapter 24, Exodus 24 rather, and he takes some of that blood and he sprinkles it on the books, and then he takes some of the blood, and this must have been really yucky, but he takes some of that blood and he literally sprinkles it on the people. And Jesus figuratively took his own blood and poured it out to ratify a covenant with you and me. And so we are in a covenant relationship 
with Jesus and with God. When we're united with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection through baptism, we are crucifying our old body of sin with Christ. And we are becoming a part of that covenant relationship. The covenant relationship that Peter talks about in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, when all the Israelites that were in Jerusalem on that day of Pentecost asked Jesus, or asked Peter rather, what shall we do? And Peter tells them, men and brethren, every one of you be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then the very next verse says, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. The promise. The promise of forgiveness of sins. The promise that you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit sealing you, marking you as a son or a daughter of God, saying, this is my special one. This is my precious one. And so when we're united with Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection through baptism, we have that promise of forgiveness of sins, but we're also in a covenant relationship with God so that there is an obligation that we have. And just like there is an accountability component with the Israelites, so we too have an accountability component in our covenant relationship with God. In Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 6, Paul tells the church in Rome, he says, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. And then in verse 11, he says, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. When we come up out of that watery grave, as is the cliché, we have a new life. But it's a new life that's not intended to be used to please ourselves any longer. That 